Our text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 22. You will find this on page 987 of the Pew Bible in the chair in front of you. <laughs> now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. Jacob, uh, just once in a while during the sermon, come on up and hit a note. Make sure everybody's awake. Keep us alert. Appreciate that. Um, here we go. We're about to finish Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians this morning. Uh, the next series, uh, we have a three-part topical or biblical series we're going to be doing on the life of the church, and so three sermons, why we sing, why we serve, and why we share, um, and so that'll lead us right into Advent. It's almost here. I can't believe it. Uh, let me, before we finish up First Thessalonians this morning, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this passage of First uh, Thessalonians 5, 1 through 22. Father in heaven, We all come to worship unprepared, unprepared for the goodness and the greatness of God the Father. We come unprepared for the truth of what our sin cost Jesus Christ the Son. We become unprepared for the gospel to truly change our lives. We come unprepared for the moving of the Holy Spirit, but I pray God that in this moment, before the Word of God is preached, that you would put us in a Spirit-empowered mindset to be ready for whatever comes our way. Speak to us how you want to speak to us. Speak to us in the ways 
and about the things we need to hear. And I pray, God, this morning, as it says in the Scripture, and we'll get to an explanation of in a moment, that the Spirit would not be quenched, that even though we don't like what we hear or we do like what we hear, that we would test it and accept it if it is true. So, God, I pray for myself that I would speak the truth this morning to be received. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, As long as the world has been around, there's always been people who think it'll end soon. Um, I was thinking about this idea, and um, there is this memory I have as a child. I grew up in Ellsworth, Maine, and I remember this 90s maroon Dodge Caravan. Who can picture this with the wood panels down the side? Okay. Uh, This was the car. It was just like my grandma's car. I think that's why I remember it. And for a good amount of time, six months or so in the mid-90s, they had strapped a giant sign to the top of their caravan that said, the world, uh, Jesus will come back October 31st, 1990, fill in the blank. Um, That sign came down probably November 1st of that same year, uh, and not a lot of eventfulness there. Um, As long as the world's been around, there's been people saying it's going to end. And so this morning we read a passage where uh, we're talking about the end of the world. And as long as there have been people talking about the end of the world, there have been two reactions to it. Those who doubt it, yeah, no, I'm good. Uh, And those who have uh, an idea of what that means. And there's, of course, a variety of different doubting and a variety of different believing, whether that be something um, like Y2K or Dodge Caravanism, as I'm going to coin this morning, okay? Um, That's when you believe it ended back in the 90s. I'm not sure if that's how that works. But listen, we're not going to be talking about far-fetched conspiracy theories this morning. We are talking about a very specific view of the end of the world, and it comes from Jesus. So let's go to Jesus real quick. Jesus declared that he would return. Of course, he was crucified, he died on the cross, he was resurrected, he ascended back to heaven, and he said he would return. Jesus talks about this return and what it would look like earlier, just before his crucifixion. And in Matthew 24, we can read a few verses about this. And he said this to the disciples. They're walking around the grounds of the temple. They're up on the Mount of Olives. They're, They're in Jerusalem. And he says this, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And we skip a few more verses down. He says, but know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. It was unexpected. They weren't sure exactly when. He gave a series, he, after this passage, he gives a series of signs would indicate the, the end is near, and those signs take place rather quickly in the first century. And so since the first century, for 2,000 years, the return of Jesus Christ has been imminent. That means any moment, any moment, Jesus could come back. We don't know when. And so this is the return of Jesus we're talking about. This imminent, could be now, be ready kind of return. Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so Paul in this passage really addresses the two different reactions to the, the idea that the world will end. He has those in the first couple of verses, what, it, what it's going to be like to be someone who doubts that Jesus is returning when he returns. And then he has a lot to say to us Christians 
First, let's look at verses 1 and 2 into verse 3. This is where he addresses those who do not expect the return of Jesus. This would be be non-Christians. Non-Christians. Verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This phraseology, thief in the night, you saw it from Jesus. It is not a pleasant thing. If you've ever had your house broken into, you know it is not a welcome experience. So to those who are doubting whom this portion of the passage is talking about, it is talking about the unwelcomeness of the return of Jesus when you doubt that it's going to happen. The return of Jesus to those who doubt that it will happen will be sudden and unwelcome. Why? Because it marks judgment. Jesus is coming back, not to say, hey, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so this is the mistake of unbelief. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Living as if everything is fine. Living as if there is no judgment at the end. Living as if there's nothing from which we need to be saved. This is the mistake of misbelief. This is what denying Christ is. So to be in Christ is to know and expect his return. In a moment, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get to Christians and our response to the return of Jesus Christ. Before we do, let's talk about what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? What isn't a Christian? Make sure we're clear on this. A Christian isn't someone who has arrived. They're not life experts. Well, let me tell you how to live your life. That's not who a Christian is or what a Christian is. A Christian isn't someone who has this formula for happiness and success and we we finally discovered it and now we're living it out. That's not what Christianity is. A Christian is someone who's been shown who they really are. Really are. And it's not a pretty sight. A Christian understands that we are just like the rest of humanity. We just talked about this in our newcomers class, our new members class. We are a person. Christians are people. And guess what our people are? People are polluted internally, fully, by sin. My thoughts, my actions, my choices are tainted by sin. That's the common human experience. And so everyone you're sitting near today, everyone at home who claims the title of Christian, they've been found out But that's not all. It's not just about knowing our awfulness. It's also hearing and understanding and believing the promise. What's the promise? Jesus doesn't just reveal who we are. He promises, he shows us, he's done the work of removing and defeating our sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean to be better. It means to be the same, but saved. And so as we look at these passages, this is the warning. This is the plea of Paul, a plea towards humility, a realization that we need salvation and Jesus is it. Reading a sermon this week, an evangelistic sermon, the the author of that sermon said it this way, the way to obtain salvation is to seek it, and what makes one seek it is that one realizes one's need for it. The humble find salvation, the arrogant and the proud ever remain outside. 
We're talking about this because as we look at the wording of the return of Jesus as it pertains to those who don't expect it, who don't want it, who doubt it, to deny our need for a savior is to declare oneself as self-saved. And so the, the truth that needs to be declared to those who don't expect a return is that Jesus is the king, Jesus is the judge, and Jesus is the only savior. That's the truth. That's why if we don't expect it, it's like it's an unwelcome and unexpected awful thing. In verse 3 it says again, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. To reject the idea of the return of Jesus, the end of the world, is to classify yourself as someone who does not need to be saved. And this is the tragedy. This is a tragedy. The tragedy is the lost not knowing that they are lost. That is an awful reality. And so thank the Lord that we have scriptures that are honest about this. Expect the return of Jesus and humble yourself in that expectation. This truth is a, a warning, it's a plea to humble ourselves. And so Paul would say to those this morning that do not, that do doubt the return of Jesus, that don't need a savior, that think, well, that's just ridiculous. He would say, give up your pride and realize your need for Jesus. Don't worry, the rest of the sermon's about Christians. So there you go. Um, move to verse four. So that, this is, that first section is about what it's like to be a non-Christian and the return of Jesus. It is not great. But here we have verse four. What does it mean to Christians as we expect the return of Jesus? First and foremost, it is utter foolishness for us to live as if Jesus is not returning. Look at verse four and five. But you are not in darkness, Brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We are not ignorant, Christian, of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, or what he has said he's going to do, which is come back. We are not ignorant of the return of Jesus, and therefore we should not be surprised, is what Paul says, we should not be surprised at the return of Jesus, nor should we dread the return of Jesus. Let's look at verses 6 and 8. This is, his, this is the concept here. Is we should not be surprised. So let us not sleep as others do. It's a little confusing. He's using a different word for sleep here, but in English, all of it's sleep. So sleep before was about those who are dead. Here it's about slumbering and laziness or, 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 or uh, slumbering to the fact of Jesus' return. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. We are aware Jesus is coming back. Jesus' return is part and parcel of orthodoxy. When we read the Apostles' Creed together, as long as we print the whole thing in our bulletin, when we read the Apostles' Creed together, we say that we believe in the return of Jesus Christ. That's a joke, because we forgot to do that several months ago, and people thought we had gone off the rails. Um, no, we just made a mistake. Um, we should not, as Christians, forget or slumber to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back and what that means. We're called to live our life as if 
it is imminent. Why? Because it is. All the signs of Jesus' return have been accomplished so he could come any moment. And so what do we do? We live, as it says in verse 8, preparing ourselves for his return. Put on the breastplate of faith and love, a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's battle language for the battle of life, preparing as we march toward the return of our king, our champion. We should not be surprised. We should ever be looking for the return of Jesus. Nor should we dread the return of Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, this is the dead asleep, we might live with him. Listen, all of us at some point in our life have wished and hoped that Jesus would just hold off a little longer so we could have some earthly experience that we're looking forward to. That, that, that happens. Well, I, I really want to experience fill in the blank. And that thing is always something we haven't quite achieved yet in our life. And we want to taste it. We want to know what it, what it feels like. And so we ask in our hearts, sort of with a cringe, just wait a little longer, Jesus. That shouldn't be our attitude. That's an attitude from a divided heart. <laughs> we love this world so much. We love it so much. And we forget what it means to be with Jesus. Every pleasure, every good-tasting food, every great relationship, everything we love and enjoy in this world is simply a shadow, a taste of what heaven will be like. To be with God will help us to fully realize all of those things in their fullest sense. And so to wish for more earth and less heaven is, comes from our divided hearts. We're human, we're frail. It's natural for us to be curious about experiencing these earthly things. But rather than eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die or, or Lord, hold off, either one of those attitudes to be our attitude, Paul calls us into a life of preparedness, being prepared, readiness, expectation for Christ to return. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is a team effort. As we live this life, knowing that we are not destined for harsh, unprotected judgment by God, we don't stand on our own. We stand behind Christ, who is our Savior, and what we get at the end is eternal and good forever. We're to encourage one another with these words. I love how Paul ends. It's a kind of an avalanche of practical commands. What does it mean to encourage one another with these words? What does it look like to, to, to help one another prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ? And so some of you may think, well, that's a, this is a whole second sermon. We're going to get there really quickly. We have three practical commandments. First, as we are in this together, as we are preparing for the readiness, as we're preparing and becoming ready for Christ's return, first, we are called by Paul to be faithful Christian followers. Followers. Look at verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. 
So as a pastor, when you read these verses and it's October, you feel weird about preaching them. There's no way around it. But listen, here's what the reality is. Our world, our world is obsessed with leadership. Our world's obsessed with leadership. Brad and I were talking about this a couple months ago. We're obsessed with leadership. We believe functionally that every organization, every group in, of people, every, every gathering of organized anything rise and fall on the leader alone. We believe that. And so what do we do? We have to have the best leaders. We have to find the right leaders. When it doesn't work out, whose fault is it? It's the leader's fault. We are called first and foremost Christians to be followers. All of us are followers. How often in this world do we talk about being good followers? We think that's kind of a lame thing to talk about, so we never do. To make this point, Paul is talking about specifically following in the church, within the church community, and he's encouraging us all, all of us, to be faithful followers. He's specifically speaking of the elders of the church, to esteem them highly with love. Now, what is not an appropriate way to look at this verse is to, if we gathered all the elders up here and we grabbed our suspenders like, yeah, that's right, come on. Let's give us some highly esteemed love. It's not what it is. In fact, think about this. When our elders who serve this church take vows, what are they vowed to do? To esteem the other elders with love. We're called to follow one another. It's about following first. We all follow Christ. We're a Presbyterian church. It's important for you to understand the session doesn't follow me. I follow the session. That's how it works. And so God has appointed leaders in our church to lead us towards readiness for the return of Jesus Christ. He's, God's appointed them. And so the questions we have, accountability questions for ourselves are, we can only answer these in our hearts. Are we esteeming our leadership very highly in love? Are we doing that? Are we following Christ and being good, faithful followers on purpose? Are we doing that? It doesn't end there. Verses 14 and 15 give us the next command. And the next command is be Christ-like leaders. What? Ransom, you just said followers is important. It is. It's so important. But also leaders. But look at the way he describes leadership. Verses 14 and 15. We urge you, brothers, all of you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. As a body of Jesus Christ, we're not, again, we're not leadership focused, we're not leadership obsessed. As a body, we're not only following the session forward, we're following one another. We're leading one another to readiness. Look at the commands here. Admonish the idol. That means to, to correct those stubbornly unwilling to move in their Christian walk. He's calling all of us to do that. Encourage the faint-hearted, those who are sad and oppressed. Encourage them. All of us are supposed to do that. Help the weak, those who are shaky in their faith. All of us are supposed to hold up those who are doubting their faith. Watch out for revenge. This is a command where he's saying, stop negative behavior amongst and between one another. And then the positive is seek to do good. Promote the good behavior the good interactions of our relationships, we, all of us, are responsible to lead ourselves and others toward Jesus Christ. 
So we have this kind of symbiotic thing. We are to be good, faithful followers. We're also to be good, Christ-like leaders, courageously applying the scripture to one another's lives in relationship. So God has given us leaders, but he's also appointed everyone in this church to lead everyone in this church toward the readiness of Christ's return, for Christ's return. So some questions, important questions for a church that, that, that builds its identity on being broken and bringing more broken people in. These questions are so important. Is there a Christian brother or sister in your life who's allowed to speak the gospel to you? What do I mean by that? Are they allowed to lovingly tell you when you're wrong? When you're wrong? Are they allowed to lovingly walk with you through temptation and failure in your sins? Do you have someone, a Christian brother or sister, reminding you of God's goodness and promises when you doubt and when things are difficult? Do you have that? That's what this is calling us to. Now, on the flip side, another, set of, another question, is there a Christian brother or sister in your life to whom you speak the gospel? Now, this is not calling people to the carpet. Jonathan, get over here. It's not what this is. It's not this. This is mutual discipleship. We'll have to talk later, though, Jonathan. There's some issues. Okay. This is making one another better. This is drawing one another towards Christ. Here's a good indicator. If you're in a healthy, co-discipling lifestyle, don't challenge other people unless you have someone in your life challenging you. Do you hear this? This is speck and, and log stuff. Jesus said, don't pick the speck before removing the log. If no, if no one in your life is speaking in and saying, hey, I love you, that's wrong, and you're accepting it, it's not a good idea for you to start picking at other people's specks, their eyes. Surround yourself with brave and loving people who are willing to speak scripture into your life and in that place, learn how to speak to them in return. That's what Paul's calling us to. This is how we prepare one another for the return of Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul calls us to be lifelong personal disciples. So he, he's, he's discussing every layer of our lives. He's talking about those who lead us. He's talking about those we live with. And now he's going to talk about us in our hearts. Verses 16 through 22. First, rejoice always. Always be glad. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Remember, where does hope come from? Hope in the now comes from our belief in the return of Jesus Christ. Famous verse, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It means to always live in this, uh, the, the awareness of our relational connectivity to God. He's never not there. He's always there to listen. Give thanks even in trial, it says. Give thanks in all circumstances. All three of these things, this, this last phrase is referring to, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ. Verses 19 through 21 go together as a unit. Uh, this idea of quenching the spirit, this is something I heard as a kid and I never really quite understood what it means, but these other verses under, help us understand it. 
Quenching the spirit simply is ignoring conviction. So if you hear, think about the scenario of a, of a brother or sister coming to you in love and in the gospel saying, hey, Ransom, you are wrong. What's the first response? Oh, let's fight. Not really, but maybe it depends on what it is. We hate to hear we're wrong. We hate it. And so in that moment, we can either say, nope, not going to believe it. That's quenching the spirit, just pushing yourself away from the conviction. Here's what the instructions are. Do not despise prophecies. What are prophecies? It is when a, a fellow brother or sister brings the word of God to you. That's what a prophecy is. This is a prophecy right now. I am bringing the word of God to the congregation. So when someone says to you in love, this is wrong in your life and here's where it is in scripture, here's what Paul does. He says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. He's saying, if you don't like it, test it. You have the word of God. So ransom, I, don't, I think this is wrong about you. Well, I don't like that. I need to go to the scriptures to see if it's right. And if it is, to ignore it is quenching the spirit. If it's right, I better say, well, I love you and thank you for your bravery in speaking the gospel to my heart. And then, of course, the catch-all, abstain from every form of evil. <laughs> Just do that, okay? Listen, the return of Jesus Christ, the end of the world, however you want to say it, it calls us to two things in order. Two things in order. First, it calls us to humbly admit that it's true. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning. He's going to be the judge of the living and the dead. If you are not in Jesus Christ, you are unprepared for that moment. You're living as if no one will ever break into your house, as if there is no judgment, as if there is nothing to be saved from. And I'll say it honestly, you stand unprotected from the imminent judgment of Jesus Christ. You stand on your own. Amen. And I'll say this, because the return of Jesus Christ is imminent, it's not very Presbyterian for me to be pressury, but I'm going to be pressury because Paul is pressury. Listen, now is the time to humble ourselves. Now is the time. We're not guaranteed later. We're not guaranteed this afternoon. Now is the time to humble ourselves. All of the criteria has been met. Jesus could return at any moment. And so what is the prayer? What is the humbling prayer? It is, Jesus, I need you. Save me. The good news is you're not in this alone. Because Christian, we have prayed that prayer, we've made that realization, Jesus, I need you, save me. And so we are called secondly, the return of Jesus Christ calls us secondly to give our entire lives to Jesus Christ. I wrote that in my sermon earlier in the week, in my rough draft, and I had a whole other ending here. Um, but then... My, my mind and my heart started asking, what does it mean to give it all? <laughs> what is that? It's something we say, it's kind of cliche, give it all to Jesus. What does that really mean? I've been reading in the Gospel of Mark and some of my personal study, and uh, a commentator this week drew uh, an arc in, Mar in Mark that rhymes, the arc of Mark, um, that I think gives us an idea. So he says how the ministry of Jesus starts in the book of Mark with him calling disciples to himself. He says, follow me. That's where the, the ministry of Jesus starts, is saying, come with me. 
And then there's this very interesting story where the ministry of Jesus ends in Mark. The, the, the last story of the ministry of Jesus is, is about this impoverished widow putting two pennies in the offering plate. What a weird story to end on. But what does that story mean? That story starts with men at work, distracted, not looking at Jesus, being called to turn, and it ends with an undivided heart. That woman gives everything to God, as little as it is. So church, this is what it means to give all to Christ. We will live an eternity with an undivided heart. One love, Jesus Christ. That'll be everything for eternity. And life right now, the work we do for each other, with each other, the, the work that's done for us is all aimed at undividing our hearts. Between now and then, that's the work. We're called together to prepare one another for the return of Jesus and eternity with our King. And how do we do that? Verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so in a world, in a world that offers absolutely no hope, this is where we can find hope. Following Christ fully together to the end. And so as we finish Thessalonians, I think it, it is a beautiful picture. I think right this morning that we use the Lord's Supper this morning to illustrate, to, to visually illustrate our commitment to live now with each other, for each other, undividing our hearts, committing our lives to preparing for eternity. Together, we take the Lord's Supper, and between our seat and the meal, all we have is being next to each other. Between the salvation of Jesus Christ and the end, all we have is one another, giving each other the gospel. All we can do is walk side by side to the end. All we can do is draw each other closer to the nourishment that Christ is for us. And because of the love of God, the Father, and because of Jesus Christ's payment on the cross, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are part of this journey. So this morning, the question of whether you come and eat is, are you a part of that journey? Are you in it with your brothers and your sisters? Are you committing to what Paul has called us to, the, the process, the work by the power of the Spirit to undivide our hearts? Are we living now for eternity? It's not to be perfect. Are we preparing for the coming of Jesus? And so this morning, if it is your confession that you are a sinner and you have no hope outside of Jesus Christ, if you've professed that faith, you've been baptized, I call you, Christ calls you, Paul calls you to come and eat and drink with your brothers and sisters and be nourished on our way to eternity. Let's take a moment Soak that idea in. Let's get ourselves in a place where we are walking together towards Christ. And then I'll call the elders forward and we will distribute the Lord's Supper.
Father in heaven, thank you that I have no control over what stings our heart and what is a balm to our wounds. Thank you that that is solely the work of the Holy Spirit, and I pray this morning that as the Spirit is active in us, that this supper would be a visual, an encouragement of the unity of this church body, that we would be a people that live as if your return is imminent, that we prepare ourselves for that, for eternity with one Savior, one love, one King, Jesus Christ. I pray that our church in time would become a place where we are brave and loving and we are willing to put the scripture in one another's lives and we are also willing to receive it in our own. Lord, there is no substitute for that. The people of God working together, following Christ, loving him more, allowing the truth to seep in and change us. Praise your name. And so this morning, as we eat the bread, may we be nourished by the body of Christ in our very souls. As we drink the wine or the juice, may we be nourished and encouraged. May we be healed and brought to a steadfast understanding of our responsibility to follow and lead and to be discipled to give our love for earthly things away and take on more and more of our Savior, our friend, our brother, our King, our Savior, our returning champion, Jesus Christ. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.